I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And the dignity of man definitely requires feeling like you have some ability over your lifestyle, your economy. Without that, it's hard to feel dignity. How have you done in our 21st century untethered, unrestrained economy? Does it seem like there is a fair and level playing field? Are you okay with someone like Jeff Bezos having a net worth of oh, around $150 billion and paying no taxes. The system's sure working for him really well. Most people agree there's nothing wrong with being rich. But when the three wealthiest men in America control more resources than 160 million Americans, how comfortable are you with a government blatantly in service to those tiny few at the top? How dangerous to the survival of democracy is this rigidified system of what Franklin Roosevelt called economic royalists. These powers have been remarkably successful at convincing the rest of us that we are powerless and there's nothing we can do. We should just give up. But we are not helpless. Our guest today has co-written a book providing tools to achieve a more equitable distribution of wealth and enhance economic democracy. And the answers provided are not only solutions to current wealth inequities, but are also useful in combating the serious erosion of democracy in America. Our guest today is Ted Howard. Ted Howard, thanks for being with us. Very good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Ted Howard is the co-founder and president of the Democracy Collaborative. Through, uh, through cutting-edge research and many diverse programs, the Collaborative has since 2000 worked to carry out a vision of a new economic system where shared ownership and control creates more equitable and inclusive outcomes, fosters ecological sustainability, and promotes flourishing democratic and community life. Utney Reader named Ted one of 25 visionaries who are changing the world. The title of the book he wrote, along with Marjorie Kelly, is The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. The book suggests actions beyond tinkering at the margins to address the systemic crisis of our economy. In the book, the authors outline seven principles of what they call a democratic economy. Well, again, thanks for being with us. What sparked you to write this book? And I note it is dedicated to Gar Alperovitz, terrific guy who's been talking about this for a long time. Tell us, please, about its genesis. Well, 20 years ago, uh, next year, uh, Gar Alperovitz, who's, a, as you said, a very eminent political economist and historian and a good friend of mine, he and I co-founded the Democracy Collaborative, uh, really on the presumption that, um, uh, you know, the, the, the foundation of so many of our cities and communities, I live in Cleveland, Ohio, for instance, the economic foundation has been ripped out from many of our communities and 
while we have a stock market that's off the charts, as the president says, um, the truth is that wealth is being extracted out of our communities and and put in fewer and fewer hands. And so we began the collaborative to develop a vision for a new approach to the economy and one that can produce different kinds of outcomes. And, and this book is, in a sense, a summation of what we've been able to do and what we've learned over the last 20 years as people literally are creating the basis for a new and more democratic economy right within the giant corporate hyper-casino capitalism that we live under. Yeah, interesting. And I, I do believe some of the founders, not all of them, but some of them uh, back in the uh, War of Independence, really believed that uh, people should be able to have some control and that we're not just subjects, as the British were, that we are uh, we can participate in our economy. But that seems to be uh, taken away from us a lot and a lot more uh, aggressively, I think, since Reagan became president in 1980. Fast forward, here we are in the thick of the 2020 presidential campaign, and it's quite clear that no matter who the Democratic nominee will be, he or she will be called a socialist, and Trump will try to make us <laughs> scared of that. And the Republicans will gin up fear of that mysterious, sometimes frightening word. The best articulator of Democratic socialism so far is, of course, Bernie Sanders. As a fan and supporter of Bernie, I have long wondered why he didn't call it economic democracy. And, not, and instead of uh, democratic socialism, what do you mean by the term economic democracy? And is it different from Bernie Sanders' uh, vision? Well, it's, it's, uh, it overlaps a lot with Bernie's vision, and I'm a big fan of uh, Bernie Sanders. But it actually, what we're talking about goes even further. First, I'd say um, you're quite right. Any, any change to this system that's going to benefit working men and women, uh, the Republicans are going to call socialism, which is, you know, complete nonsense. So what we've been told for so long is we either need to have this kind of, you know, large corporate dominated hyper, you know, go-go economy that really works for the 1%, or we're all going to live in Soviet Union style state socialism and bureaucracy and anti-democratic. And in our book, we argue that's a false dichotomy. We don't favor either system. But there, what we need to do is invent a new system with new principles. Now, Bernie advocates many of the components that would make up a new, a new economy, like employee ownership, you know, a way for right. people to go to work and not just clock in and work for the man and get a wage, right. but actually have an equity stake in their company. So, you know, we're, we're interested in broadening ownership. But Bernie doesn't go as far as, and I, I, again, I very much favor many, many of the things he's talking about, but he doesn't really look at this, at the system of our economy itself and how, you know, the, the, the outcomes we're getting, uh, growing wealth and income inequality, climate change, these are natural outcomes of a system organized the way we've organized ours. So we need to not just have some policies and not just to look some better people, but we need to look at how the economy is constructed and infuse it with new principles and change the way it operates and therefore the outcomes. And we call it a democratic economy. Mm -hmm. um, some of it will be about worker-employee ownership. Mm -hmm. uh, other places, um, you know, in the south of the United States, lots of small communities that are have Republican mayors, by the way, 
have been, in a sense, redlined by the big technology companies and the cable companies. And so these communities don't have good broadband access, for instance. And so the Republican mayors have started city-owned businesses to provide high-quality and cheaper cable and broadband to people. That is, in fact, a kind of little local mini-socialism, but Republicans are practicing it. So these old labels are not serving us. No, that's clearly true. And I'm reminded, I I was in the New Hampshire State Senate uh, a while ago, and there was a private, privately owned water company, and it was causing a lot of problems. And the people who picked up the ball and ran with uh, municipalizing it, making it owned by the municipality, a large city, were all Republicans. I just sat back and watched. Well, you know, that's the thing. I, I find at the local level, the community level, yeah. lots of these strategies just make sense. Yes. You know, I, I was in Amarillo, Texas a couple of years ago because I travel all over the country, and I'm really blessed to be able to see the extraordinary work people are doing to build this democratic uh-huh. economy. And I was in Amarillo, and, and it is truly about the reddest place I've ever been. Mm. I mean, I don't think you could get elected dog catcher there if you're yeah. a Democrat. Right. And um, I'll avoid it. And I start talking about employee ownership and shouldn't workers own the places they work in. And I thought, boy, is this going to sound like Marxism or something? And the first person that spoke was the mayor of the town, a Republican. And he said, you know, I'm all in favor of working people owning the places they work in. As a young man, I worked in a car dealership and we had an employee stock ownership plan. And I just think it brings about more accountability and Mm -hmm. it's good for the people. And so he's the Republican mayor and, and employee ownership rather than outside investor ownership just made common sense to him. And I think that's the hope that we have that at the ground level, outside the nonsense of Washington, D.C., there's a lot we can work on together across the political divide. It amazes me how, you know, it's not even out there in the public discussion. But if people talk about, say, employee participation and ownership and management, you get a better product, for one thing. People have more of a stake in it, and it works really well. And yet, it, it, it's somehow that discussion is, is stifled as if, oh, no, this is it. What we have now is the only possible way it can be. Of course, that's nuts. And, you know, there's a lot of history here. Most of the people, as we mentioned earlier, who fought in the War of Independence thought they were fighting against rule by aristocracy. But as it gained steam, the American aristocrats uh, saw an opportunity. They jumped right into the fight because they wanted to be the top instead of the British aristocracy. So we successfully went from monarchy to a republic, sort of. The Shays and Whiskey Rebellions demonstrated the widespread feeling of kind of double-cross by the new ruling class. What happened to the idea of an economy working for all the people, not just the top few? Well, you know, when the country began, the founders, um, you know, as imperfect as they were, and obviously the number from the South were slave owners, and, you know, we know all the, the shortcomings of the founders. Nonetheless, they crafted a set of political principles to infuse into the government. Unfortunately, the government has now been so captured. <laughs> I think if the founders came back, they'd think that George III had won the war right. of independence. Oh, for sure. But, but what we're saying is let's take those principles of democracy within the government and extend them into the economy. 
And one thing that the founders really believed was that the basis of democracy lies in our communities and the active participation in our communities. They, you know, the word corporation doesn't appear in any of the founding documents and the constitution and so forth. And they really saw a nation of small uh, farmers and small business people, that that was the basis of liberty. And that's just been swept away over time. And so, you know, this is, in a sense, taking back the original vision of this country. But, but I'll tell you, the, the, what stands in the way of a truly democratic economy are two major things. One is the stranglehold of concentrated wealth and corporate power on our government and in our economy generally. You know, there, there's, I mean, it's, it's a very big problem. It's going to need a kind of political movement to challenge it. But the second thing that really impedes our progress is our own individual, I mean mine, yours, your listeners, failure of imagination that we can envision, that we could get beyond this situation. There's a great quote that I heard once. Um, someone said, it's easier to imagine the end of the planet than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And that is really true. And, and you know, so we, we live within a system of this kind of off-the-rails capitalism that, as you said, really took off under Prime Minister Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, and then really again ramped up again after the Great Recession. Um, and we think, well, this is all there is. But if you and I had lived in Pharaoh's Egypt 3,000 years ago, and, you know, Pharaoh's Egypt lasted a couple thousand years, we would think there's always going to be pyramids and pharaohs and sphinxes and priests. And now we study that in the British Museum. And so yeah. these systems come and go, and we need to get to work to envision what is the next system and on what principles is it based. Yeah, and it does seem that so many people are, are crowded on the highways at rush hour, going to jobs they don't like, but they kind of feel trapped. And there's to be able to think about alternatives, it just seems way out of reach, really. And, and, and you know, that's probably as intended. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive with your help. It's a heavy lift. We need everybody. Our guest today is Ted Howard, who's uh, co-written a book called The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. Seems impossible. Now, clearly, our current economy isn't working for many. It's very clear. But you think that even more than economic equality is at stake. You put our very democracy as well as the fate of the planet in the balance. Why do you believe a democratic economy is the answer to all these challenges? Well, you know, the kind of system we live in, again, is based on a certain set of assumptions and principles and arrangements between institutions and policies. And one of the assumptions, for instance, is that the only way this system can work is it need, it's, it's based upon the idea of unlimited expansion and growth. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, the, the way to make progress and improve living is just keep growing and growing and growing. What we, and by the way, historic socialism had the exact same assumption built into it. And what we're seeing now with climate change, for instance, is we cannot just keep growing at this rate. There's no way we're going to be able to handle the climate crisis 
and continue the extraction of resources on the planet, let alone what's happening to water and air and everything else. So that gets to the question, can we envision a system that doesn't need to be constantly growing? And what we're saying in the democratic economy concept is rather than have this hyper-growth-oriented system and then after all this activity, try to put in some taxes to you know redistribute some of the wealth, try to regulate a little bit, but we see the power of the companies just keeps slamming regulations like putting a picket fence in front of a bulldozer, that what we need to do is design an economy where it, it doesn't concentrate wealth and then you try to redistribute it, but that the way the economy works is it generates opportunity for everybody and we don't get these massive concentrations of wealth. So, and, and it has huge environmental implications. I, I know it's really hard for people to think about these things yeah. given you know so many of us are working two or three jobs just to keep our families going mm-hmm. but we need to realize that our kids and our grandkids are not going to have as good a life as even we've had if we continue down this trajectory and so the book when, what we're writing in the making of a democratic economy is not flagellating ourselves about how bad the current system is we've got a chapter on that but it's telling stories of where people already people like us are already inventing new kinds of companies, new kinds of economic development, new structures that are already producing the kind of outcomes that I think at least would be good for the entire society. And there are a bunch of examples in the book, The Making of a Democratic Economy. Perhaps we should uh, go into some of those. Uh, you know, And what you and Marjorie write about is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. You cite real actions being initiated in America. For example, Cleveland has been one of the poorest cities in America. You introduce the reader to something called the Cleveland model. How bad is it there, and what is the Cleveland model? Well, Cleveland is my hometown, is my town now. I I moved there to do the work I'm going to describe briefly to you. But it's a fascinating older industrial city. It's like so many others, you know, whether it's Baltimore, which, of course, famously the president Uh, has, you know, denounced, um, or Dayton, Ohio, or Detroit, Michigan. These used to be the economic engines of the country. In the 1950s and 60s, Cleveland was one of the five wealthiest cities in America. There were more Fortune 500 corporations headquartered in Cleveland than any city in America except New York City. Um, uh, There were more millionaires in Cleveland at one point. It's extraordinary statistics. More millionaires in Cleveland, now this is back, you know, many, many decades ago, than all the rest of the world's millionaires combined. So it was an incredibly wealthy city. Fast forward to today, um, it is one of the three poorest cities in America because of deindustrialization and jobs fleeing. Um, It's uh, about 35% or 33% of the population lives below the poverty line. And there are only two Fortune 500 corporations left. So the Cleveland Foundation, which is the largest philanthropy in the city and um, the first community foundation in the country, uh, asked me and my organization, the Democracy Collaborative, to help develop a strategy uh, to uplift very poor neighborhoods in a, a city that didn't have a lot of big assets. But what Cleveland has, like so many other cities, is legacy institutions, what we call anchor institutions from the days it was a, a big manufacturing powerhouse. 
Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals, Case Western Reserve University, the Art Museum, and so forth. And we did a calculation and realized that just a handful of these large uh, uh, anchor institutions, what some call ed to meds, buy $3 billion a year of goods and services. And yet they're surrounded by neighborhoods of about 50,000 people that have a median household income of 18500 That's $4,000 below the poverty line. Mm. And so we worked at the institutions to take contracts that have been going to California or Mexico or China or wherever and move them back into the city so that we could give them to local business and uh, put people to work. Then we created a network of for-profit worker-owned cooperatives to supply goods and services to the institutions. And these are the evergreen cooperatives. So the Cleveland model is leverage the purchasing and hiring and investment policy of your big place-based institutions and intentionally drive the business to the people most in need. So we have a, imagine a football field, an NFL football field, three football fields in size, year-round hydroponic greenhouse growing three million heads of lettuce in downtown Cleveland and uh, employing people who are formerly unemployed or incarcerated, all of whom are owners of the business. We're doing about 30 million pounds of sheets and towels and other bed linens for the hospitals. About 200 people working in this Evergreen Cooperative Laundry, getting a living wage, getting health benefits, and profit sharing. So this is the kind of new model of business that is effective and can meet people's needs much more than working for a giant laundry corporation where they're getting virtually uh, minimum wage. Mm. Interesting. Well, I, I wonder about the availability of capital. I mean, the, the big banks these days, which my tax dollars and your tax dollars went to bail out. Thank you very much. Uh, but what about alternatives of, of capital? They, I imagine that the traditional banks uh, would be a little bit wary of that. But you know, there, there's a, a lot more discussion these days of public banks being able to lend money a lot cheaper, uh, nonprofits, things like that. Is this part of the solution, do you think? Uh, the, the control of capital and the appropriate investment of it is essential to the building of a democratic economy. If, if we're beholden to the five or six huge national banks, and you know all their names, mm-hmm. Wells Fargo and B of A and Chase and so forth, um, uh, you know, if we have to negotiate with them forever to try to get the capital we need to invest in things like the Evergreen Cooperatives, that's just going to be a non-starter. We've right. got to have our own capital and control it. One way to do that is, as you've suggested, through something called public banks. Now, there's one public bank in the United States, and interestingly, it turned 100 years old this week. It's the Bank of North Dakota, Uh founded in 1919, Uh uh, which, by the way, North Dakota is one of the reddest states in the country, but it has, in a sense, a socialized bank. (laughs) And it's where the the state government does all of its banking. All of its reserves are in the bank. All of its transactions go through the bank. Um, And so what this meant at the time of the recession 10 years ago, when... I was, by the, I was trying to get a mortgage 10 years ago, and I couldn't get a mortgage mm-hmm. because credit had dried up because of the financial collapse. Mm-hmm. Businesses couldn't get access to capital. But in North Dakota, the Bank of North Dakota, because it's owned by the people of the state, kept lending. And because of that, North Dakota weathered the financial crisis uh, better than almost any state in the union. 
So right now, because of that very interesting model, about two dozen states, including places like California, huge states, are exploring um, the creation of their own public banks. And about two or three dozen cities are doing similarly feasibility studies for public banks. And if we could break the stranglehold of the giant financial institutions and give communities control over their own resources, that would be huge because, you know, the city government has to put its money somewhere, but where they're putting it now is actually undermining the city's future. Why not create their own banks? But there are other sources of capital also. I mean, there are community development financial institutions and credit unions that can extend loans and are very good institutions. There's what's called impact investing, where hospitals and universities are, and philanthropy are setting up, setting aside some of their endowments or their investment assets and investing locally. In Cleveland, and then I'll, I'll stop it just as an example, in Cleveland, the Cleveland Foundation just announced that out of its about $2.5 billion endowment, it was going to set aside $150 million for local investment in the Cleveland community rather than investment on Wall Street. That's just a sensible way to use the resources of our institutions. Common sense? Oh, my goodness. How radical is that? But uh, I wonder, a lot of people, a lot of average Americans kind of like capitalism. They like the idea it feels free in a way. I mean, it's a terrifically unlevel playing field. But they say, well, what's wrong with, with getting rich? And they have... I think, a misunderstanding of what economic democracy would be. I mean, for those people who want to start a business and and make a fair amount of money, that is not incompatible with economic democracy, is it? No, it's not incompatible at all. You know, the problem is we've been almost brainwashed for so long that if we don't just accept this giant, you know, economy and growth and you know, the concentration of wealth, if not, you know, we're all going to be enslaved in some bureaucratic nightmare. It's just absolutely nonsense. Um, I am all for entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think it needs to, you know, result in you're an entrepreneur and now you become, have a hundred billion (laughs) dollars of assets and and you get, you know, outsized political sway in Washington, D.C. Yeah, that's not But I'm all for entrepreneurship. And in fact, one of one of the chapters in our book, um, and Marjorie Kelly and I tell the story of an entrepreneur in Portland, Oregon, who had been homeless. He couldn't get access to uh, information about you know, available housing for homeless people. He realized there was a whole barrier of, inf- of blocking people from getting access to resources that existed. And this fellow who had been homeless on the street um, created his own app that allows homeless people on phones to be able to get hooked up to housing and other kinds of resources. And then the city government invested in that because that would be a good use of city resources, you know, rather than just having people on the streets. And then people started getting jobs and they've been homeless as well. And he gave them shares in the company. And, you know, that's a great way to go. And he's thriving. The people are thriving and a social problem is being handled in Portland. So, you know, um, I'm all for, you know, small businesses. And what we've got to get away from is the giant corporate structures that are more powerful than our communities. I mean, literally 
cities can't stand up to them. And in fact, they've, you know, it sounds rhetorical, but I think everybody knows they've captured our government in Washington, D.C. I mean, the reason we can't get climate change mitigation really happening is that giant fossil fuel companies just stand in the way in. The way we can, the reason we can't get uh, pricing on pharmaceuticals in hand is because our Congress is bought by the pharmaceutical mm-hmm. companies. So mm-hmm. unless that's the reality, and I know people think of, of this kind of capitalism as anyone could become a millionaire and if you just apply yourself, but that's just not the reality anymore. No. 71% of the American public says the system, the economic system is rigged against me, each person, in favor of the wealthy. And that is absolutely the case. And we've got to do something about this. What amazes me is how these few giant corporations with so much power over Congress, I think they really see uh, what is theoretically our government as their fully owned subsidiary. I mean, they just, you know, they they work for the the big uh, corporations, and that's not the way it was supposed to be. I don't think our founders would be happy about that. And you well, sh- go ahead. Well, well, I was going to say, you know, back back in the 1950s, let's say, or the 1960s, there was still a lot of poverty, and you know, there are all kinds of problems with the economy. Oh, yeah. But it hadn't gone as crazy as it's gone now. And the reason why was two factors. In those days, first, there was still a fairly robust, organized labor movement in America. Now, it's never as, as well, it was never as big as in Western Europe, for instance, but at the peak in the 1950s, 35% of all private sector workers, you know, automobile workers and so forth, were unionized. And what that, what unions did was, it, they were kind of a countervailing force on the power of capital. Um, you know, they pushed back. They got eight-hour days. They got retirement accounts. They got better wages. Well, now only 6% of the private sector workforce in America is unionized, and it's going down. So you don't have that, that institutional countervail against the power of capital. And then secondly, in those days, back in the 50s, early 60s, Government had not been captured to the extent right. that it has been. There were there were lobbyists, but there weren't tens of thousands of lobbyists all over Capitol Hill, and so now government is no longer the constraint. So you have this rampant, you know, again, people call it. I think it's a good term, casino capitalism sure. going on, and there's no force pushing back against it. We are literally being run over, and that's part of the new dynamic we have to take into account. And Franklin Roosevelt uh, also warned us about uh, government by uh, big industry, big powers is uh, just as bad as uh, government by gangs of thugs. And it seems that they have uh, really done that. And people, I think most people don't see any way around it, but there are ways around it. Again, if you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Ted Howard, who is co-founder and president of the Democracy Collaborative. He and Marjorie Kelly have written a book, which we're talking about, called The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. And I wonder, Bernie talks about Medicare for All, and that's, that seems to be a big issue right now. My And, and you talk about... Uh, uh, anchor institutions. I, I would think that one of the positive benefits of Medicare for All would be a proliferation of hospitals and doctors who could then go into depressed areas 
in, in what ways do you think hospitals uh, might be anchor institutions? And what can average people do about that? You know, if the, the Hospital Corporation of America is, you know, the only one calling the shots, uh, that ain't going to work too well. Well, you know, I've been doing a lot of work in the United Kingdom recently, in England. I just got back from a couple of weeks there. And some of the work is with the National Health Service over there, which, um, you know, uh, someone on my staff calls the mother of all anchor institutions. The National Health Service in England is, uh, you know, the second largest employer in the world after the yeah. Chinese yeah. army. <laughs> um, yeah. But the, these in the United States, uh, we work very closely. We've established something called the Healthcare Anchor Network, and 45 of the major health systems in the country, and these are, you know, Kaiser Permanente and the Cleveland Clinic and Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit and so forth, um, are working together uh, because, and, and we're the organization that's coordinating all this, and working together to localize their purchasing, you know, buy local in the communities where they're rooted, localize their hiring, so they're hiring more people from particularly disadvantaged neighborhoods that are often right across the street from the hospital, mm. and localize their investment policies. And the opportunity is, you know, really great because just these 45 systems represent over a million employees, over $50 billion of purchasing every year, and over $150 billion of investment portfolios. And what we're finding is there's a new day in healthcare. Institutions have realized they can no longer be the passive recipients of sick people and you know fix them up when they're sick, that they need to create actual healthier communities so that people don't get sick. And the way they can do that is by, you know, purchasing locally, creating more jobs, helping to invest in housing with their endowments and the like. So I think these institutions, like hospitals, and they're imperfect, and there's all kinds of issues with insurance and all that, mm -hmm. but these are huge assets, especially hospitals and universities in our community. And if they can be mobilized to, you know, put their, you know, muscle into this, uh, incredible things can happen. And we've seen that in Cleveland, out in California, a system called Dignity has set up a $100 million revolving um, low-interest loan fund to mm -hmm. local businesses that mm -hmm. are too small or aren't, don't have the credit history to get a loan from a great big bank. That creates healthier businesses, more jobs. Um, you know, uh, targeted hiring programs. So these systems really are allies, I think, certainly at this stage in building a democratic economy. And in our book, we uh, devote two chapters to how these big systems um, are doing this kind of work. Well, and, and you talk about the UK. They, they're certainly farther along than the U.S. in building the ideas and institutions for a democratic economy. The, the, the Industrial Revolution started the engine of the extractive economy. It began there. Tell us, if you would, please, about the Preston model, which may be fueling this latest revolution after the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Well, what's taking place in the community of Preston, England, is really a story that has huge implications, not only for the United Kingdom, but I believe the United States. Preston is, um, some historians say the Industrial Revolution of the 1830s 
uh, literally began in Preston. If it didn't begin in the city, it began right next door. So it is at ground zero, as you said, of the birth of the industrial extractive economy. And in 2012, when I first went to Preston, I was invited by members of the city council and government to come and talk about democratic economy and community wealth building and the evergreen cooperatives in Cleveland that they'd been following. And when I went there, I found a city of about 150,000 people really flat on its back. Mm. Um, The Tory government nationally has imposed something they call austerity, which is it's squeezing the budgets of city councils everywhere, and they're unable to deliver services like they used to be able to. Um, Companies had fled the city. Um, I, I walked along the main street, what they call the high street in England, and it was just boarded up, block after block. It was a devastated community. And what what the city council realized is no one's coming to save us. We can't rely on London for anything. And if we're going to have a Preston, we need to do for ourselves. So they started down a path, and they're doing some of the following things. They convinced seven of their anchor institutions, including the city council, the local university, even the local police force, um, to assess their purchasing, their supply chain, and systematically bring contracts back to Preston, such that within a couple of years, 70 million pounds, about $100 million, that use of contracts that used to go to London or to France or somewhere, now was coming back to Preston. So in a town of 150,000 people, $100 million is now coming back into the system. Mm. Then they worked with the Public Employees Union, and persuaded them to invest a hundred million pounds, or about $125 million, of worker pension money in local investments in housing and business development and so forth in Preston. So there's another $125 million. Then the university set up a unit to incubate cooperatives so that people that wanted to start businesses but didn't have enough capital themselves could band together with others and start small co-ops. And these are you know, five members or ten members, but they're new jobs. Then they're now exploring how to do a public bank in Preston, capitalized by the city council's reserves, and on and on and on. The end result is the following. When I first went to Preston in 2012, Preston was listed by the government of, of England as in the bottom 20% of the most deprived communities in the country the lowest wages, the most unemployment, and so forth. So bottom 20%, you do not want to be there as a city. Earlier this year, PricewaterhouseCoopers, not exactly a radical socialist organization, did an assessment of the most improved communities in all of England, and Preston came out number one. Its wages are now above the national average. They've saved or created something like 1,500 jobs through the Preston model. So... There's still a lot of work to do in Preston, but it shows when you have a really concerted strategy and a commitment to building a democratic economy, things can move fast. And because of this, the labor government or the labor political party mm-hmm. of Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. in, in the UK has taken up community wealth building yeah. as one of their main themes. Um, There is a unit within his office that fosters this around the country. And there are about 40 different cities and communities in England that are building or exploring their own versions of the Preston model. So that's what it's about. Oh, I'm, it's it's hard to be patient for Jeremy Corbyn, but I, I Boris Johnson, boy, I can't see him 
I, I hope that Jeremy Corbyn is waiting in the wings. It, it would be such a good day for the U.K., I believe. Uh, and one thing about America and Americans, I think, it's always, I, I never could quite figure out why people that are, you know, getting screwed the most by the system are oftentimes the biggest supporters of the system. And many years ago here in New Hampshire, we had a governor who changed the Office of Citizen Affairs to the Office of Consumer Affairs. There's the big difference. We are not consumers. We are citizens. It takes effort. You know, this is not a spectator sport. But being citizens, I, I don't, people, do you find that people are starting to get that a little bit more? Or are they just accepting, you know, and worshiping the big money people who they think somehow will make me rich too? Do you, do you start to see a change? Well, I, I have seen a change, especially over the last 10 years. I, I think historians will look back at the you know 2008-9 financial crisis when you know we almost went into depression as you know oh, yes. um, and they'll see it as a pivotal moment in the history of American capitalism because what it did is it broke the allegiance of the and the mythology that so many people had come to believe about the economy you know that that you know, if we just grow the economy, it will trickle down to everybody in need, which, of course, it doesn't. No, or, ever. <laughs> or, you know, average people can't, you know, run companies. We need the really smart people with the Harvard MBAs or the Stanford MBAs. Well, guess what? These are the people that were running the big banks that tank the economy. And I think people saw that. But the issue is, while, while, while in a sense the emperor has no clothes, has been revealed to an awful lot of people, a lot of them went and voted for Donald Trump. Yes. Um, because he said, you know, this whole thing's a swamp and we're going to drain the swamp and I'm going to break things up. And the reason they did it, I believe, and I live in Ohio, mm-hmm. and so in both Obama presidential elections, Obama won Ohio handily, and then Trump won Ohio with many of the same Obama voters. Right. right. And I think what's happened is people have been shocked about the system, don't think it represents them. But there's not yet a compelling vision of what is the alternative that people can see. And so, therefore, a strong man like Trump is appealing because he says, I alone can fix it. What we need to do is build that vision. And that's the primary reason, actually, we wrote this making of a democratic economy. It's, it's not designed to say the system we have is bad. We do that in a chapter. But it's designed to say a new vision is emerging and start to see yourself within that vision. So I think that's the big challenge, because when you have people that are now believing the system is rigged and doesn't work for them, you know, that's a lot of people in Germany in the 1930s believe that too, and we know what happened there. So if we don't, those of us that can see a positive direction, it's up to us to paint that picture and make it compelling and relevant to people, even Trump voters themselves. Absolutely. And uh, it just, uh, it, it, it's always nice to have some sense of optimism. There's so much pessimism these days. But you're right. I, I think, you know, people are starting to look around and starting to think, maybe this isn't the only way that maybe Trump promising that everybody be a winner. Golly gee, it doesn't seem to be working. One thing I've wondered about over the years, within our top-heavy capitalist system is philanthropic giving. It's it's long struck me, for the most part, or a large part anyway, as public relations effectively 
protecting the donor institution from having to pay higher taxes and having to answer to the wider community? Is there anything that can be done to push those big money places to listen and be responsive to the communities where they're located instead of just to shareholders? I would think there's opportunity there. Right. Well, well, philanthropic institutions, I mean, they're very, very interesting, especially as I mentioned, the, the idea of a community foundation, you know, where local po- people yes. basically pool their resources for uh, to benefit the local community. That idea was born in Cleveland, Ohio, um, about 105 years ago, 106 years ago. And today there are 700 community foundations all over the country. And they are the philanthropies that are the closest in touch with the local community. Now, some of them are still very elite, and they only, you know, fund the art museum, and I'm all for funding art museums, but right. our, country, our communities have a lot of other needs. Yeah. But the best of them are really getting deeply engaged in the life of the community. Yeah. For instance, Cleveland Foundation uh, each year sets aside about a quarter million dollars of money for grant making and has established a board of about 25 community residents who determine how that money should be deployed. So it's not the professional advisors at the foundation. It's community residents. Uh-huh. And anybody in the community can come forward with a proposal, and it could be $500 proposal or 5000 There, It tends not to be huge grants. But, you know, this is a way to encourage civic and democratic participation by people. The interesting thing for me is if you look at, like, what would be the next system of philanthropy in America? You know, what we really need to realize is the reason, in a sense, we need philanthropy is because our system so concentrates wealth that we kind of believe that the people who have it should give some of it back through Mm -hmm. these foundations. What if we had an economy that just didn't concentrate wealth as much? We probably wouldn't have as many (laughs) social needs that these kind of philanthropies need to to deal with. So I'm, you know, my organization, probably three quarters of our funding comes from philanthropy and God bless them. Mm-hmm. You know, I really appreciate it. But it'd be, it's a really interesting thing to imagine what kind of system would there be that really doesn't need to have these giant multi-billion dollar institutions based on the concentrated wealth of a Ford or a Rockefeller or a Gates or a Bezos or anybody else. Uh, relying on the kindness of strangers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I was um, uh, there, there's a place in Spain that's very important uh, to what we're talking oh, about, right, and it's right. um, three provinces in northwest Spain along the Atlantic that I are called the uh, it's called the Basque country, and the Basques uh-huh. are a particular ethnic minority. Yeah. There's a couple million of them in Spain. They're very different than the rest of the Spaniards, you know, in Barcelona. Very unique Their language, language is different, oh, and so yeah. forth. But in the 1950s, they were just dirt poor, and they had fought in the Spanish Civil War, the best did of the 30s, uh, on the side of the Republic against General Franco. And as we know, Franco crushed the Republic. And not only that, but when World War II ended, when Mussolini was strung up and hung, and when Hitler killed himself, Franco, who was a fascist as well, proudly so, uh, he stayed in power till the mid 1970s. Yes, and so the Basque people were just dirt poor, and and the government would give them nothing. Nothing, right? And they decided to uh, find a new way forward, and, and so a priest and five students created a small company 
There was a worker co-op who was making little paraffin burning stoves. Um, five people did this uh, to put people to work in Basque Country. Today, you fast forward 60 years later, there are 75,000 people who are owners of these companies, the workers mm-hmm. in them. They have an integrated network of over 100 companies. They had about $20 billion of revenue last year. They have the third largest bank in Spain, the seventh largest corporation, the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation. Right. And the European Union did a study of wealth equality and inequality all over the EU and found that in the Basque Country, that's where the greatest income and wealth equality was anywhere in the European Union. So they have very successful companies. But their principle is, for instance, the CEO shouldn't make, you know, an American Fortune 500, the CEO makes often 300 times what the lowest wage worker makes. In the Basque country, the ratio is six to one instead of 300 to one. And therefore, everybody can, can, you know, share in the profits of the company. And because of this, you don't find really rich people in the Basque country, and you don't find homeless and beggars on the street. Mm -hmm. And they have one foundation that helps with some things, but they don't have all these big philanthropies because the company itself is generating the kind of social value that's needed. Wow, such an interesting model. I'm, I, and I'm hoping that can be uh, uh, replicated. And I've, I've heard of the Mondragon uh, example there. And you talk about really poor places. I mean, let's face it, the, the, the worst demographic, the most impoverished demographic in America has largely been the indigenous people, the Indians. Although Wounded Knee, we all know, was the site of a massacre and the end of a way of life, it's also, as you describe in the book, where a regenerative community being built by Thunder Valley CDC is helping restore Native Americans' capacity to control their own economic fate. Wow. What's going on there? The Pine Ridge Reservation is in South Dakota. It's a very large area. I mean, I think it's... uh, about as big as the state of Rhode Island. And I know Rhode Island's the smallest state, but still as a piece of land that's big in South Dakota. And it's where the Oglala Sioux were driven after the Indian Wars. And so the the population on on the res, they call it the res, not the reservation, is um, Oglala Sioux. The unemployment rate on Pine Ridge Reservation is somewhere between 80 and 85%. I mean, that's just astonishing. There's no inner city in America. Uh, I mean, we have bad poverty and in, in unemployment, but nothing like this in in cities. But on Pine Ridge, it's 80, 85 percent. And um, what, what happened was a, a group of very young, dynamic, at the time in their 20s, now 30s, um, uh, uh, Sioux young leaders came together and said, you know, we're just not getting what we need for our people. There's no housing, there's no business, there's nowhere to buy anything. And so they started a plan that they're now implementing to build what they call regenerative community on 35 acres of land. Um, It's going to have light manufacturing. They're making uh, housing out of straw bales and very ecologically rational ways of building the housing. Um, they're building a cultural center, um, uh, a retail, uh, even a skateboard park for the kids and mm-hmm. so forth. Um, and the interesting thing is they ask themselves, well, how are we going to build all this? Because 
we don't have any construction companies on the reservation. So what they would typically do is go to Rapid City two hours away and hire a white firm to come down and do the construction. But none of the Indians would get, you know, um, employment and there'd be nothing left behind. Mm. And so they started their own cooperative that's a Native American worker-owned construction company that's going to build this eco-city and then put people to work and then start to build other things on the reservation. And what that shows, first, I mean, it shows the incredible power of individuals to to really bend the arc of history in a way that's unpredictable. But it also shows that even in the most impoverished places, with the fewest assets, people of imagination and courage who won't be stopped can go forward and begin to build the basis of a new economy locally. And that's the story that we tell in our book that's happening all over the country. And then the question is how to move all that to real scale over time. Um, and uh, we think looking back at history, there's some very good reasons to think this can move to very large scale. Well, that is uh, kind of exciting, I have to say, that, that there are possibilities there. And one thing a lot of people are aware of, this has gone on for a long time, is LEED certification buildings. Today, the industry standard for green building norms, and use that example to suggest how innovative ownership designs might move beyond the experimental stage to become society-wide. Tell us more, please. Well, we're very big fans at the Democracy Collaborative of what we call enterprise excuse me, enterprise design. So think of a business. Most of us can only envision two kinds of businesses. One is an individual-owned business. It could be a mom-and-pop shop. It could be a local mm, construction company that has 30 people in it, but it's owned by one person or a family. So it's called closely held. The other kind of business are the large investor-owned corporations that, you know, have chains everywhere that are auto companies that, you know, they, they, their ownership is absentee. It's not based, for instance, in Cleveland, even though they may have a facility, they don't have any knowledge or even loyalty to the community. So we think those are the two kinds of ways to do businesses, but no, there are all sorts of other designs. And we've talked about some here, worker cooperatives where the people working in a company own them. Another kind is um, we could call it municipally owned companies yes. where city governments own the power plant mm-hmm. rather than an outside investor power plant well, for that. cheaper power and hopefully cleaner power yeah. and revenues for the city tax base. That's a different kind of form. One that we've identified that we think is emerging rapidly and is very interesting is a com- companies that are employee-owned, so not driven by outside investors, but owned by the people who work in them, but then also have what's called a B Corporation certification. And this is something that started about 15 years ago. And it's a, you know, right now, if you're on the board of a company, most companies, what your responsibility is, is to maximize shareholder value. That's what you're looking at, not what's the benefit to the community. A B Corp, though, says it's not only going to be profitable and make some money, because you've got to do that, but that it is designed to produce social benefit in the community in terms of environmental outcomes, better quality jobs, and so forth. 
So this kind of blending of employee ownership with this social mission B corporation designation is a very interesting one. And we report on one of the companies that's uh, in our book uh, that's an engineering firm that has both of these qualities. And you can see how it leads the company to make very different decisions um, in its day-to-day corporate life. So there may be some reason for hope. What what can the average person do? Well, first let me say, I think there is a lot of reason for hope. On one hand, it's a very dark time. Yeah. You know, and I don't need to go, anybody that's watching TV um, will know what a dark time it is. And then, of course, we face this sort of crises like climate change that, you know, I think no one has a handle on. Right. Nonetheless, where I think the hope is, is that there are what I would call laboratories of democracy all over the United States and in places like England, where people have said, you know, we ha- this enough is enough. We're going to start to build a new kind of economy and a new politics in our community. And you see that going on all over the country. I- I've been in this work in a long time. I'm fairly old. Um, and I remember 10 years ago, I talked to people about worker cooperatives and so forth, and their eyes were glazed over. Right. You know, what does that mean? Is that socialism? What? And now it's, you know, city governments have in their budgets line items to support the creation of worker cooperatives, including cities That's like New York City. That's so great. you're seeing an explosion of these kinds of forms. City governments are establishing offices of community wealth building to promote this democratic economy vision. And these aren't like radical left cities. I'm talking about Richmond, Virginia, the former heart of the Confederacy. Um, So I think the the growth of innovation at the local level, as people deal with their problems, is one of the great, great reasons for hope. And then, you know, I just also believe that people's imagination... People are finally waking up. Hallelujah. You know, we're realizing that the mythology of the economy we've all been told about, it's like we've been living in the matrix. And <laughs> instead of like the blue pill, we take the red pill. You know, we, people are waking up and seeing that, that the underpinnings of what we have, not only unfair, but they're simply unnecessary and there are better ways to organize. So that, I think, is the hope. Ah, that is so good to hear. The book is The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. Our guest today has been Ted Howard, one of the co-authors, wrote it with Marjorie Kelly. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, it's, you know, these are the worst of times. These are the best of times. We're making it. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Bert. I appreciate it. You take care. Thank you. When it will be right, I don't know.